You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Today, Justin Bassey speaks to Jason Healy, Senior Research Scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs, specialising in cyber conflict, competition and cooperation. Jason has had a series of senior cybersecurity roles in government, academia and think tanks. They discuss the importance of understanding the implications of cyberspace on security and society, and why cyber needs to be at the heart of national security. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Jason Healy to the ASPE podcast. Jay, welcome to ASPE and to Canberra. Great, thank you. Jay is a pioneer of cyber defence, operations and intelligence, with a career too long to mention, but including roles in the Pentagon as a founding member of the first joint cyber warfighting unit in the 1990s, known as Joint Task Force Computer Network Defence, and as Director for Cyber Infrastructure Protection in the White House from 2003 to 2005. He wrote and edited the first book on the history of cyber conflict, called A Fierce Domain, Cyber Conflict 1986 to 2012. And while we don't get to meet up enough, I can say that Jay was a key mentor for me on all things cyber policy. Jay is the ideal teacher, someone who has actually been there and done it, and now focused on advising governments on cybersecurity, in particular, conflict and competition in cyberspace. Jay, you're in Australia at a very timely moment for those interested in cyber policy, with the government finalising a new cybersecurity strategy. I'm keen to get your take on where we are today and what cybersecurity strategies should do, but can you start by taking us back and telling us how you came to be focused on and developing US cyber policy in the 1990s, when so many in government were focusing on the end of the Cold War, nuclear issues, and other threats, such as counterterrorism. Sure thing, Justin, and thank you for having me at ASPE and to the team here, and it's great to be back in Australia to see how you're tackling these important problems. So I knew I was wanted to be involved in this area uh, around 1994 when Alvin and Heidi Toffler came out with a book called War and Anti-War. And they were saying, boy, there was that we've gone through an agricultural age and an an industrial age. And being agriculture or industrial drove everything about societies in those times, not just how money was made, but how families were organized, education was pursued, and yes, how wars were fought. So now that we were entering an information age, how will that change how we fight wars and how we want to achieve peace? This was 1994. So the 1991 Gulf War had only just been won by the United States a few years earlier, where a very informationized force, one that had information dominance, was able to have an exceptionally one-sided win against a force that was exceptionally military capable, but information dumb. And so there was quite a bit of ferment in the United States military and other militaries at that time about what do we think about this? How is this going to be different? How do we approach this? As someone that enjoyed technology but would never be a technologist and was in intelligence, this seemed like a very natural place. And um, I just got back from DEF CON and Black Hat, the hacker conferences in Vegas, where me and my colleagues from those years think about, we ended up with something that seemed interesting and had a lot of curious problems. And it ended up being 25 years on, 
just an area of that's become far more important than we could have imagined then. That information went from being something that was important to really underpinning everything about modern society. It really is extraordinary one level to think that uh, we're talking about inspiration you're receiving from uh, words from the 1970s, work that you were doing in the 1990s. It, it eventually led, Jay, to uh, the first book on cyber conflict written by you, A Fierce Domain. A, a key theme of that book, uh, and just as you did there in describing what got you into at the field of cyber, a key theme was to keep looking back to see further forward. Why is it that learning the lessons of the past and, uh, frankly, the recent past at that seems so difficult for us? Part of that, thank you, came for me and I, I went to a military school and, and at the time when I got started, I, I was an Air Force officer. And so much about the profession of arms was about learning from those that came before. You know, in the United States, uh, you know, we would go to, for example, the Gettysburg battlefield you know, as modern officers and walk around and imagine how you as an infantry officer, an armor officer would have fought that differently and what, how you would have succeeded. And it really struck me as I talked to my colleagues, here was a battle that happened 150 years ago and was still relevant. And I would say, well, how about what happened to Australia in 2007 or Georgia in 2009? And even in 2010 or 2011, two or three years later, oh, why are we still talking about that stuff? There was this sense that cyber was so new that certainly anything worth learning was still ahead of us. And that anything behind, well, that can't possibly be be important for what we do. It was against everything that we were about as a profession, and, and it just got me a bit angry. And so, especially when you dive in and you see these quotes from 40 or 50 years ago that are still relevant, right? The quote that we can't bolt security on afterwards, you must bake it in in the design and the creation of software. That was from 1972 that we were talking about that. Statements that the red team gets, always gets through. If you pay some friendly hackers to test your system, that they will almost always succeed. 1972. And so I especially like using these for policymakers, for military officers, for diplomats, for technology executives that say, no, 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 we're almost there. If we just keep doing these marginal approaches, surely we'll have about succeeded. And then to say, well, no, these problems are 50 years old. They are far deeper. Our grandparents were dealing with these. And unless we do something differently, our grandchildren are going to be dealing with the same things. Hmm. I think it helps get people in mind of, aha, this is important. And if I can go a little long, it's really striking if you go back and look at the important cyber incidents that we've been through in the United States or you've had in Australia, like Optus or the others. Many of them aren't interesting in cybersecurity terms. They're just like the ones that we went through, frankly, back to the 80s, 90s, right? The, the 2016 election interference by Russia into the United States they were using things that would have seemed exceptionally common to us and not wearing in the 1990s. And so to phrase it maybe more as an academic, there's been a lot of continuity in the cyber threats we're facing. Sure, they're more dangerous, the exact groups we're facing. The technology has changed. If you hear someone say cybersecurity is changing so fast, the speed is incredible, they're focusing on the technology 
only. If you look at how what states are actually doing to each other, what the hackers are doing, the kinds of things, astounding continuity. Um, there hasn't been that much change in the kinds of operations that they're doing. They're much more dangerous using different technologies, but the same back to the 80s. The, uh, uh, one of the quotes uh, in your 2013 book that seems to still be relevant was that policymakers should learn from the experiences that their predecessors have already encountered so that they need no longer be surprised by jarring wake-up calls. I wish we were sitting here saying that in, decade, in the decade since you wrote that, that we have learned uh, and moved forward. But I fear that uh, if we are doing a podcast in 10 years from now, we'll still be able to use that line verbatim. So why, why is it, Jay, do you think that, that we can have major wake-up calls? You, you reference uh, a number in the US, you reference Medibank here. We mm -hmm, had, mm -hmm. uh, so it's our health sector, our telecommunications sector with Optus, I remember when we first started talking about these uh, issues, one of the, the conversations we had was about, well, once cyber conflict or once cyber intrusions go from state on state, traditional state on state attacks and become more relevant for the public, then maybe there'll be a demand to do something. But we, we have seen such attacks in, uh, and intrusions into the, into the health sector and into the telecommunications sector. It's still proven very difficult to maintain cyber-related issues in the public consciousness. So is it just that we have to accept that cyber, cyber threats and incidents are not the same as other threats like terrorism, mm. which are in your face? Or is there a way that we can better maintain cyber security as a priority for uh, both governments, industry and the public? So on one hand, it, it's perfectly fine that we continue to be surprised. Cyber and digital underpins everything in modern society. So a lot of times we say if there's been an intelligent surprise, we say, oh, we had a failure of imagination to, to think about X, Y, or Z. But when cyber and digital underpin almost literally everything, right, our imagination can't be limitless. So we're going to be surprised, right? We have new people that are coming into these jobs that haven't experienced themselves. So we have to try and help them with vicarious experience. We have a new dependence on the technology. So areas that wouldn't have failed before, electrical grid, for example, now can go down in ways that we expect, but we'll still feel them as a surprise. And also new adversaries. Yes, the, the main adversaries for the United States that I worried about as an intelligence officer in 1999, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, non-state actors has not changed until 2022 in February, states weren't invading one another for territorial gain. And so we were used to how those adversaries would operate and we thought we understood the rules of the game. Now that states are invading each other in Europe for territorial gain, I expect to have a lot of new surprises and new lessons. For example, cyber Many of my colleagues say, well, cyber isn't used this way. It's not used for destruction. It's used, uh, there's no digital Pearl Harbors. Well, that might just be because we didn't have Pearl Harbors for, for so many decades from the end of the Cold War because states weren't generally using large-scale military force against their neighbors for territorial gain. Now that that's changed, that global governance has been eroding, I'm expecting a more dangerous game that's going to catch many of us more by surprise. Do you think, 
Jay, that we still suffer from a situation where policymakers, the political class, view cyber as still separate to national security and that we are, when you said earlier, that mistakes have been made continuously around not baking security into all things in the information space. Do we need to do better at the saying cyber cybersecurity doesn't impact national security, cybersecurity is national security? I'm a little more cautious on that than you might be. When I was in the White House the first time, cybersecurity was a subset of innovation. It was a subset of economics. And if we, for example, were arguing that this Chinese investment in the U.S. might not be allowed, it was a difficult thing for us to make versus the economic side. At least as far as the phrase national security, now I'm afraid we've gone too far, right? Cybersecurity is a subset of national security. And by which we mean import, we largely mean important. We, we use national security as a synonym for existential, which is fine if that's all we mean. But national security has a bureaucracy. And I'm saying as someone who's been a national security bu bureaucrat, right? We are some of the most paranoid people around, right? We don't normally work well with partners. Sharing internationally or sharing with the private sector is not the way that we are normally built. Uh, Jane Lute, who was the deputy secretary of DHS and undersecretary for peacekeeping at the UN, had a great phrase that national security tends to be top down. It tends to be about all of us. It tends to be about unity of command. Cyber is typically more like other areas of homeland security. It tends to be not about all of us. It's about each of us. It's not top down. It's bottom up. It's not unity of command. It's unity of effort. And so... So yes, I agree with you that it's increasingly existential, but I'm very cautious about that national security framing. And by the way, if I can go back to your previous question about the surprise, yeah. I do think we're getting a lot better. And that surprise is going to be less than it might have. Almost every board of directors of a publicly traded company has someone that's been through an incident. Maybe it's some other company. And if it happens or before it happens, they can tell their peers, this is how it happened to me. We don't want to go through that. Increasingly now we've had policymakers, military officers, ambassadors that have been through that. You have like you and I that have been in these jobs and rolled out and now going to academia and think tank and are helping others to understand about these issues. I just finished a tour at the White House Office of National Cyber Director. Many people there were on their second or, or third time at the White House. And and this is important within the United States system, some of those people are now permanent civil servants within the office of the National Cyber Director, meaning that they will go on beyond when they're the next election. So think about that. We, the United States just did our last national cybersecurity strategy. The next time we do one, there should be people there that were involved in the last one. I think that kind of continuity within the White House is the kind of thing we didn't have before and is going to help a lot to stop not just that churn of constant surprise, but also that policy churn to say, to have that continuity. Because we have had, even within the United States, substantial continuity between Democrat and Republican administrations for the past 25 years on the solutions. It's an excellent point. It can sound funny at times, but change with continuity is, uh, it, is often the... Uh, the best way to uh, to approach these issues. Uh, I, I think what you're getting at there, Jay, is that 
it's not always in this field a matter of working out how to prevent all intrusions or prevent all incidents. It's how we are best placed to respond. Obviously, we'd like to prevent as many as we can. I think what you're getting at is that a lesson to learn from the past is about resilience. So is that is that a message that, that you're providing, that, that uh, yes, of course, prevention is important, but we will, whether we like it or not, continue to be surprised from time to time. So it's how resilient we are to those surprises? There is, without a doubt, the systems are so complex and so insecure, the spark which causes the wildfire could come from almost any source. And so, of course, we should be working to tamp down those sources and to reduce that. But we're never going to get there to fully do it because these systems are just so complex and poorly poorly secured. So two things. One is looking at the interconnection of risks. Even if an enterprise, an organization, a person makes all of the correct risk decisions, we're still, um, a guy named Dan Gear had said, we are uh, reliant on distant digital perfection. Even if we make all the right choices, we're dependent on everybody else making the right choices too. So it comes down to resilience. Almost every other investment that we make in cybersecurity is good, especially in technology, is only good for that, right? If some adversary comes out with a special ASPI attack, well, now we need a special ASPI defense to work against that. And that just adds to the complexity. If you invest in resilience, if we invest in, for example, instead of taking a million dollars and buying new technology, we take a couple hundred thousand dollars and we run exercises with our board of directors, with our executives. It doesn't matter where the, the spark came from that caused that. It's a general purpose investment that we will be better at responding and better at bouncing back more quickly. And to be able to, to bounce back uh, more quickly, Jay, the, the, one of the key requirements is uh, resourcing. You make the point that let's not lose people who have been there and been involved, get them involved into our current and future thinking Cyber security has been one of those areas uh, across government that has struggled from time to time to get the necessary priority that then gets the resourcing. We've seen it in the years where there's been priority placed on responding and recovering from financial crisis. In the Australian context, we were gearing up for a cyber security strategy through 2012, 2013, and it turned into a digital economy mm-hmm. strategy uh, with the priority focused on the economic side. How do you see the role of government in enabling, I think you've got a great phrase where you have expectations of government to be an enabler and an encourager in these areas. How do you see the role of government in ensuring that we all place priority on cybersecurity? Yeah, and this is, I, the new US strategy does a good job on this and I'm happy to say that some of the work that we had done at Columbia University through our New York Cyber Task Force helped influence the White House on this, um, helped that I helped draft the strategy uh, to keep it in there, is what can we do to get defense better than offense for an individual organization, for a sector, for a nation, or best yet, for cyberspace as a whole? And if you think about that, how can we get defense better than offense? How can we make sure that our kids, our grandkids, when they're our age, is going to have an internet that's at least as rich, robust, secure as the one that we have today. It puts you in a different headspace. And so to me, 
government has a huge role in this. I see the government role as a bit different than I think some do. Our job in government is where can we put the lever to get the most out of the private sector? Sometimes if I'm talking to military, I say, think about there are some private sector companies, the big platform companies, the big tech companies, the cyber, the big cybersecurity companies. Think of them as the host nation within cyberspace. Just like if you were doing a counterinsurgency, you rely on the host nation to have the knowledge, the local knowledge, the ability to do some things you want them to. They've got legitimacy in areas to act that you don't. It's much easier and generally more preferable for the host nation to do those things than it is for you. Your job is to help them get there. I think that's a good analogy, especially for government and military folks. You know, we've been through fighting so many decades of counterinsurgency. So how can we rely on those main private sector companies, the Microsofts, the CrowdStrikes, the Mandiants, the Googles, Cisco, Intel, Telstra, NTT, to live up to those responsibilities and to help? So what's the government role? I see three you'd mentioned, right? To enable where the companies might have the willingness but don't have the capability. The government can help them. Sharing intelligence, for example, uh, might need to encourage them if they've got the capability but not the will. Here, governments can help by calling out those companies that are doing well, embarrassing those that don't. And last, enforce. If encouragement, if enabling aren't useful, then what is that role of regulation? What is that role of, and not just regulation, all too often we go into regulation, but what would taxing look like? Just like we might say as a government, we're going to have a carbon tax because you're polluting and there's a negative externality. If we're saying you write terrible software and it's affecting others, well, you're going to have to pay a tax on that and you're going to have to buy credits from those that write good software. Is that a great idea? I don't know, right? But we can look at new ways of covering this other than just saying we're going to regulate or we're going to have liability. You talk about calling things out. As I mentioned, uh, you're visiting Australia at a time that the Australian government's working on a new cybersecurity strategy. And as you know, having written a number of these for the US system, there's always a debate and a challenge about what should be included, what shouldn't be included in relation to calling out uh, negligence or bad behaviour. Uh, wouldn't mind coming to uh, attribution. I'm of the view that to... Uh, increase public awareness to increase the priority on cybersecurity within the national security community, policymakers, we should attribute bad behaviour. And it was discussed in your in your book. If I can just quote a little bit back to you. Oh, please uh, do. Uh, attribution of cyber attacks has been the most difficult, yet the most important aspect of cyber defence. There will always be analysts who say you cannot prove that or the source of the attacks might be faked. These small technical truths have for too long obscured the larger truths of which nation was responsible. So that was 2013, 10 years on. We've continued to have these debates on attribution, including thresholds for certainty in who did the attack. There are policymakers in Australia and elsewhere who argue attribution is a failed policy. My argument is that it's not the policy of attribution that has failed, but it's the implementation mm. where we've been terribly inconsistent, having in Australia, for example, called out Iran, Russia, North Korea, and China over the years for cyber intrusions. 
but we've only done it every now and again. And it's been based often in the context of the bilateral relationship with, with other countries, not in the context of the merit of each individual incident. Could you tell us where you now stand on attribution? Would your advice be to the Australian government that they, they should include an attribution policy in this upcoming cybersecurity strategy? And do you see any opportunities for us to improve how we alert the public to bad activities and unacceptable actions in cyberspace? Thank you. I wouldn't push necessarily on attribution because attribution, you know, announcing the responsibility is an important step. But we have much more powerful tools to go beyond that now than we did when I wrote that in, in 2013. The new U.S. strategy talks about this in pillar, I believe it's 5.4, which I wrote and I couldn't believe that it actually made its way through. And it, and it ties to norms. And I think attribution and norms for cyber are in similar places where for years we said, well, if only we can get cyber attribution, but it's difficult. If only we develop cyber norms, but it's difficult. Well, we solved both of those. Not solved, but we, we've come a long way with Australia, the United States, a few other countries, a few other companies are quite good at attribution. And we now have norms. Right? We started norms at least with the Obama-Shi agreement in 2016, I'm sorry, 2015, on theft of intellectual property. But now through the open-ended working group, which has been a process at the United Nations, originally sponsored and pushed by the Russian Federation, every member of the UN General Assembly has agreed to a set of norms. When you hear someone say, well, we of course there are no norms and international norms in cyberspace. It really hasn't been true for a long time. It definitely isn't true now. So I would like that our states, that responsible states, don't just call out behavior. We tie it to, if for example, China, this behavior, say um, the hafnium attacks, which were by Chinese intelligence against Microsoft Exchange, we called out China for it, and now we can say it's not only China, it wasn't only irresponsible, but this is exactly the kind of behavior that China committed to every member of the UN General Assembly that they weren't going to. Right? We've got the attribution, we have the norms, now we need to push on that enforcement of saying, good, we put these to work. We have our diplomats go in and say, they promised they weren't going to do this. And I know many people will be skeptical, but the open-ended working group brought in diplomats from really around the world. They put in a lot of work to learn the issues, and they went through a lot of pain, not just the ambassadors, but the full diplomatic staff to learn the issues, and then to say, good, we argue it out, and we will all jointly make these commitments. So it's worth a shot for us to push this. And to see if we if we can get farther. Is that directly going to limit, say, Chinese, Russian, North Korean, Iranian behavior? Maybe not. Can it win friends to our side so that the future of the internet is one that is friendlier to democracies and open societies? Absolutely. I'll just come back to that Obama-Shi agreement for one last. After that came out, both the Department of Justice as well as FireEye Mandiant, which is one of the main cybersecurity companies that tracks these saw a precipitous decline 
in Chinese commercial espionage. It went down from something like 70 or 80 companies being affected at any one time to something like five in the time after that announcement. If we would have seen those declines after a big push by the military for deterrence, grr, very macho, right, getting out, we're going to deter. If it would have been some new technology that we would have pushed, such a substantial decline, we would have been taking victory laps about that. But because it was diplomacy and it didn't last, we said that was a failure and we wrote it off. So instead of continuing to say, this worked, how can we keep this up? I think diplomacy is not a binary and we were treating it that way. The Obama-Shi agreement has arguably seen much more decrease in adversary activity than the U.S. strategy of persistent engagement. Yeah, yeah, and yet yeah. that's getting billions of dollars going towards it and the diplomats have very little. It was, in my view, a, a really critical agreement back in 2015. We had recently the pleasure of having Chris Painter, your old colleague mm -hmm. on the Aspie pod, talking about the lead up to that agreement. And it then led to a couple others around the world, including here in Australia in 2017. Mm. And what you're saying very much resonates with the conversation we we're having with Chris, that setting those agreements and setting those norms is vital because it allows you then to set a threshold of what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And a country like China and others who have different political systems uh, to us and different starting points, they can no longer say that they don't share our views on issues. They've signed on to something mm -hmm. and therefore they should be held accountable as so should we all. I agree with you it, it, in these areas often comes down to enforcement being uh, the problem, not so much the original policy. But what do you say though, Jay, to those who argue that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which you referred to earlier in terms of now we're back into states invading for territorial gain. Uh, what do you say to those who say this has shown that cyber is not the, the key field that we thought it might be and that cyber is not going to play a role in modern day warfare? Overlearning the lesson. Just like those that early on said, you know, there are a lot of lessons that seemed appropriate in the first weeks or months that as the conflict has dragged on, might might not seem. I had written back in the book uh, in that came out in 2013, A Fierce Domain, that with cyber capabilities, it's easy to take, sometimes trivial, to take down a target. But it is exceptionally difficult to keep down a target in the face um, for a long period of time in the face of determined defenses. And I think that describes what we've seen on the Ukrainian side, right? that they've gotten a tremendous amount of, um, that they've had real technical and societal resilience. They've had determined defenses. Those determines have been aided substantially by the technology companies, as well as other governments and other militaries, including United States Cyber Command. To me, that's all idiosyncratic. I'm sorry, that's an, that's an academic term, which means it matters, right? Are any of those factors going to help Iran if Israel and the United States decide to attack to take down its nuclear enrichment program? I don't think so, right? Microsoft and Google aren't going to be running off to help Iran the way they did Ukraine. Is that going to help Taiwan in the face of China? 
Perhaps some of it will, perhaps some of it won't. Just like we imagine that the People's Liberation Army is looking what happened at the Russian army and said, let's not do it that way if we're going to plan an invasion. We can imagine they're looking at how to use cyber capabilities properly and saying it didn't work for them. They didn't plan correctly. They didn't conduct their operations. They weren't able to integrate their air forces with their ground forces very much. Let's make sure we do better. So, so I am deeply concerned about, about people overlearning the lesson, right? If you're going to attack somewhere, you want what, between three to one to six to one, hopefully you have a six to one advantage. There's nothing like that you can say in cyber. You could look at an attacking force and a defending force, and you have no idea which is going to be more successful. You know, you might say, well, they spend a lot of money. They do, they're, they're well defended. They use the, this or that cybersecurity framework. They've got this security rating score, and that might suggest that it's harder, but they don't have to attack you. They could attack someone else in your supply chain and get in, right? There's so many variabilities. There's a lot of uncertainty. I'm glad that it has gone the way it has. I'm pleased that the Ukrainians have one less thing to worry about. I'm pleased that Putin and his cyber forces have decided not to attack the United States or Europe to try and coerce us or disrupt our, for example, energy or finance infrastructure. But I'm very, very cautious about overlearning those lessons for what happens next time. Because you have said reasonably recently, Jay, that cyber could still be to the next world war, what railways were to World War One? Yeah, and if I can explain that right, I mean, the railway mobilization timetables were one factor in World War One that helped accelerate the crisis faster than the decision makers were necessarily ready for. And cyberspace, but as well as space, right, are seen as fragile, as seen as places where an attacker might be able to get in a punch when the other side's not expecting it. So if, say, United States and China were expecting war might happen on Saturday, the United States might want to get in a punch on Friday. And if China expects that, they might want to get their punch in on the United States on Thursday. And therefore, the dynamics of the cyber capabilities are helping create the war which might not have happened otherwise. And if I can say for many people like, well, what about deterrence? And surely if um, if we in the United States or Australia or, or, or France or Germany have an amazingly powerful cyber force that will keep the others from wanting to attack us. Think about another, the other, another way. Right? If you knew you were going to come face to face with, to use an American term, the biggest badass around, right? you knew this person had a fearsome right hook that was going to lay you out, but a glass nose. They were very, very vulnerable. Well, of course you're not going to wait for them to call you out for the fight outside. No, you're going to pop them in the nose before they get a chance to bring that mighty offensive capability to bear. So to me, the more we brag about our offensive capabilities and have weak defenses, we're inviting that surprise attack from the other side. For those of you that follow nuclear, this is what Dr. Wolstetter had said at Rand. The United States SAC wanted to base our bombers and tankers as close to the Soviet Union as possible so that we could refuel and, and strike them quickly. But there was no defense. And this was in the 60s. And Wolstetter said, if you do that, you're inviting the surprise attack because it's all offense and no defense. 
These are the same lessons as 60 years before. We just have to know our history. Jay, that uh, I think is actually an excellent uh, spot to uh, to end knowing uh, history. I, I don't want to let you go though without, of course, mentioning uh, your great book, which I still do encourage people to uh, have a read of. Notwithstanding, it was ten years ago. It it really does remain relevant. Uh, apart from your book, what would you recommend our listeners who are interested in? cybersecurity and cyberspace, uh, what book or book should they go out and read right away? Oh, that's great. On the military side, I've been very impressed with Daniel Moore's book, Offensive Cyber Operations. Um, he's an academic, but he's done a great job of really diving in on the geopolitical aspects of offensive cyber operations. It's now on, on my curriculum. And I just finished, cyber regulation is big in the news right now and software liability and it's been out for 15 years, but Geekonomics it does a great job of talking about the economic incentives issues on cyber and especially diving into software liability about how in no other areas of society do we allow a company to sell us known defective products and then say it's entirely up to us on how it gets used. It goes through why that's unacceptable and what we might do about it. So uh, that's Geekonomics and Offensive Cyber Operations. Excellent. I, I think it is also very relevant given uh, your key theme and thesis of learning from history that apart from your book written now 10 years ago, uh, these books are, uh, are not new. We should be uh, ensuring that we understand that there's not much that's new again. There's uh, an accelerating pace of change perhaps, but we can learn a lot from history. Jason Healy, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Aspie podcast Let's make sure we uh, do it again shortly. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Aspie. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns, and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.